All right. Can you hear me now? All right, we'll get there. Revelation chapter 3. And it seems the harder I preach, the more people keep showing up. Because we've been bringing it the last few weeks, right? We've been bringing the fire, amen? And it seems like the harder we preach, the more people show up. And praise God. Revelation chapter 3, we're looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Let me remind you, Apostle John was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. The government wanted to shut him up, but God had other plans. And so while he was exiled, he received visions, and the Lord came and spoke to John and said, send this letter throughout the seven churches. And of course, we have the privilege and the honor to read these letters that were sent to the seven churches. We're going to look at church number five, the church of Sardis this morning. Revelation 3, 1 through 6. He says this, if you just read along with us. He says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, speaking of Christ, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, we refer to that as the pastors, the messengers of the church. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. Listen to these strong words, he says, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete or sufficient in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. And if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People have not soiled their garments and they will, will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers, or as the scripture says, the one who conquers or the one who overcomes will be clothed thus in white garments. Now I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we hear what the Spirit has for us today. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray with the very few moments that we have this morning that you would bless, Lord, your word. Give me clear mind and heart. May I be sensitive to the Holy Spirit as we teach, Lord, and share your word this morning. Lord, the message to this church, a church that had a reputation and that looked alive, but you said it was... It was dead. Lord, help us to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to this church of Sardis because the message that you have for Sardis is also the message that you have for us today as well. And so I pray that, Lord, you would please bless, Lord, the word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me remind you, um, as I said earlier, John wrote these letters and he sends them out to seven churches and at that time was Asia Minor. We know it as uh, Turkey. How many of you have ever heard of the 
country of Turkey. And there you can see there on the western side of Turkey, which was back then Asia Minor, now it's Turkey. He sends these letters. These are real churches, physical churches. And some of the letters that we study, he mentions names of people in these churches. And so these were real places, real people, real circumstances. And so he sends these letters that the Holy Spirit gives to him. And he says, these are the words of Christ for the seven churches. This week, we're going to look at the church of Sardis. And uh, I want to just remind you that these are the words of Christ to this church. A little bit about the city of Sardis, and I'll come back to the city of Sardis a little bit later because there's some kind of some interesting stories. But Sardis was at, in, in, its, in its day, in its prime, Sardis was the richest place on planet Earth. In fact, they believed that Sardis was the first place that, that coins were minted where they began to use gold and silver. There was a king named King Croesus, if you've ever heard of him, King Croesus. It was during the Lydian Empire. He was one of the wealthiest people on planet Earth, a very wealthy king. In fact, he could use his money to buy power, use his money to buy reinforcements. And whenever he would at times go to war, how many of you ever remember the Spartans? He would hire the Spartans. And they would always come to his aid. And that kind of will tie into the story here in just a little bit about the city of Sardis. It was the capital of Lydia. And we'll see here in a few moments historically, we'll see that there is some significance because some of the words that Jesus uses, he uses history to warn this church. To warn this church that they too might fall like the great capital of Lydia, Sardis. Like a thief in the night, he uses that reference. This city was filthy rich. The king Croesus used the gold and the silver that he mined there to employ armies. And, and he would go out, of course, and conquer. And of course, he'd hire his, his big guns, the Spartans. They would always come to his aid. We'll see here in a few moments, but the city of Sardis did fall. How many of you have ever heard of Cyrus the Great, the Persian? And we'll talk about that story in a few moments. But Sardis, a very wealthy city. It's near what's called Mount Tamolus. And the city of Sardis, wealthy and prosperous and powerful. And in fact, the prophecy said this, that the city would never fall. And so because of this, this Lydian king thought that there would never be a time that they would ever be conquered. And we'll see in a few moments that they were. The church, the church that's mentioned here in Sardis, it's interesting because each week we kind of have one word for the depiction of what Christ has for that church. For example, Ephesus was the one that lost its love. It did not have the love that it should have had. We looked at, the, we looked at Pergamum, a church that compromised. We looked at Thyatira, the church uh, that was tolerant. It was the tolerant church. And it's interesting because we said that there's very much a sequence here. That as you look at each church, it becomes sequential and that there's a, there's a whole message within it. 
Because we saw that the church at Ephesus had lost its love and fervor for Christ. And the less you love Christ, the more you fall in love with the world. Are you with me, church? The more they fell in love with the world, they began to compromise. We saw that Smyrna was the one church, one of two churches, where the Lord has no, no confrontation with them. But Smyrna was the persecuted church, and they were so in love with Christ that the Lord had, he had nowhere where he had to really correct them. But we saw that the church of Pergamum compromised. And then that carried over the church of Thyatira, and Thyatira went beyond compromise to that of tolerance, and they allowed sin to come into the church. And it leads us to the church in Sardis. Did you guys catch what the Lord said about this church? If there's one word that described this church, it would be this, a dead church. Wow. A dead church. Some of you are like, been there, been the one before, right? <laughs> How sad. A dead church. In verse 4, usually we would say that there's the compliments that Christ has. In all the churches up to this point, the Lord Jesus Christ had compliments. He would compliment them. He would commend them for things. And he says to this church, there's very little or no compliment or commendation to this church. It's so sad because even the Lord who sees everything couldn't even find much good to say about this church. He does mention, we'll speak of them in a moment, of a few people who've held on to the faith. But what a sad condition of this church that the Lord says to this church, you're dead. And so we see that there is little or no compliment to this church. He says, I see your works. He says, but you have this reputation. You have an appearance that you're alive. He says, but you are dead. You are a dead church. And so he confronts this church. The majority of the letter is him confronting this church. He says to this church, you're dead, and then he even uses the terms twice. Here he says, you need to wake up. Wake up, you're spiritually dead. Why was this church dead? There's probably lots of things that we could discuss and lots of things that we could say. But I would propose to you that if you were to do an autopsy of a dead church, what you'd find is this, that the one thing that will kill a church who once had a reputation for being alive, a church who at one time was on fire for God, who had a reputation of being alive, but he says, but is dead, I would propose to you sin will kill a godly church. Are you with me, church? Sin. In fact, even from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, when man fell, God said this, that, that if you break my laws, what will be the consequence? He says, there will be sin. And sin, when it is finished, the scripture says, brings forth what? Death. Sin brings death. And you say, well, what sin did this church commit? And it's not even about that. But somehow this church allowed sin to creep in, a cancer, if you will. Sin choked the life out of the church of Sardis. We forget 
that oftentimes when we think of sin, we always think of the things, you know, sins that we commit. But can I tell you something? There's also in Scripture, not just sins of commission, sins that we commit, but I'll tell you something. There is the sin of omission that is just as deadly. Do you understand what I mean by that? Sins of omission, meaning things that we should be doing that we don't do. The book of James says it like this. He says, he, he says whatever we do that is not of faith, and if we're not doing it by faith, he says, that is sin. If there's things that we know that we should be doing and we neglect them and we don't do it, that is just as much a sin. For example, let me give you an illustration. It would be an awful thing as a parent for me to abuse my children, to abuse my child. How many of you say, Pastor Joe, that's right, that's a terrible thing. How many of you would agree with that, yes? If I were to abuse my children and physically harm them, but can I tell you something? There's just as great a crime against children, and that is the sin of neglect. Are you with me, church? If I'm to neglect them and, and not nurture them and not feed them and take care of them and provide for their needs, and, and it's a disgusting thing. But even this past week, I've, I've seen stories and, and news. There was a, a woman who literally took her child and put him into a room and locked him up. And two weeks later, three weeks later, family members found this little child malnourished, nearly starving to death. And they found out that she went on a vacation went on a cruise, and then she went from a cruise and went and visited family three or four states away and left that child there, neglected. That's just as much a sin, come on now, church, as abusing that child. And she could say something like this, I've never hit him. But it's just as much a sin. You see, somehow in the Christian life, and many times, even as churches, what we do is we say, well, we're not sinful because, well, we're not committing these sinful things. But can I remind us, church, that there are things that we should be doing that if we don't do, it's just as much a sin before God. Does this make sense? And so this church was choked out by sin. Most likely the sin of omission. Not doing the things that God had commanded them to do. Not doing the things that a church ought to be doing. And, and you could use your imagination and let the Spirit lead. But the Lord says to this church, you're a dead church. How sad. He says there's only a few true believers within this church. And so this brings us to a very strong warning that part of the problem of this church is that within this church, there were those who professed to be followers of Christ, but they were not true believers in Christ. Does this make sense? There were those within this church that the Lord says to them, you need to wake up. And what he was saying is you need to be spiritually awakened, that the church somehow was infiltrated. As the scripture says in Matthew, Jesus warns the tares or the weeds mixed in with the wheat. And what happened to this church is this, is that there were those who were not truly born again, blood-bought believers sitting in the pews, if you will, and they infiltrated the church. 
And so this church was filled with those who professed to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but never truly were born again spiritually. I'm using some terms that sometimes people don't understand, but the Bible makes it very clear that each and every one of us, there must be a time in our life where we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and at that moment, the Spirit quickens us and makes us alive, amen? We're born into God's family. This church had many people who attended the church, went to the church, but they were not Spirit-filled, let me show you some warnings in Matthew 7. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, doesn't say few, it says many, will say to me, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, notice this. What does he say? I what? Never knew you. By the way, it doesn't say I knew you and you, you fell away. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, this is a strong message, and this is difficult sometimes for us to hear, but not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? And even though some people can, can put on, if you will, a good front and a good mask, and they can, can fake it, Jesus warns that there are those, even within the body of Christ, if you will, those within the church, he says, that, that appear to be religious, but they're lost. Look what he says in Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, 27 through 20, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Do you remember the most religious people in the day of Jesus? The scribes, the Pharisees. Do you remember those guys? They wore the long robes. They would stand out in public and pray for hours. Remember the real religious ones? This is what he says about them. You are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within, notice what he says, you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly, notice this, appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Do you see, Jesus warns, even here on earth, he says, beware, be cautious, be careful, because there are those who appear to be something that they're not. How many of you have ever been to a wax museum before? Do you know there's one called, there's like, there's like four of them that's called the Hollywood Matt Wax Museum. Have you ever heard of them? You're like, I would not waste my money to go to one. I probably wouldn't either, you know. I remember as a kid growing up, once in a while on trips, we'd go in and there'd be these wax museums. And I mean, some of them are really good, right? They're, they're even moving and they're, that, you know, and as a little kid, I was like, man, that looks so real. They do. They look real. And, I mean, it's impressive. But they're dead. Do you know, I think a lot of times there are a lot of Christians. We call them Christians. And it's not our job. It's not my job. It's not your job to judge. It isn't. But we do need to be on guard. And we do need to say, okay, not everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ is a follower Christ. Does this make sense? Not everyone who says, I'm a believer in Jesus is a believer in Christ, is a follower. And he warns about this. 
How many of you have ever been on a simulator before? Ever been on like a simulator? Like you know what I mean? You get into them or you get on them. Sometimes you'll even put on these like glasses. You'll get on this, you'll get on some, and it, and it might only move just a few inches. You know what I'm talking about? And the wind starts to blow. And, and I mean, and you, you, you feel like you're a thousand feet in the air. And then when you kind of take the glass off, you look and your feet are dangling like three inches off the floor. You know what I mean? It looks so real. It feels so, and you're doing this and it's just crazy. How many, you know, how many have ever been to that Bugs Life, you know, at, 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 at the Disney? How many have ever done that? Any of you? You know, you're sitting there and all of a sudden you feel like you're being stung and you're jumping out of your seat. And it seems so real and feels so real, and it seems like this is, it's really happening, but it's not happening. It's sad to say, but the church of Sardis had people within the church. In fact, the vast majority of the church were people who were coming to the church, attending the church, going to the church, but they, and, and, and speaking about Christ, but never truly encountered Christ. Does this make sense? And when they begin to make the decisions and they begin to say, this is the way things should be, before long, the church began to die. For example, years ago, you might not like this. I won't mention which group or which organization or which church, but years ago when I first began pastoring, there was a movement in the churches wanted to grow, and they wanted, to, they wanted to, to, to pack out the church. And so there was a movement where they began to take people and go out into neighborhoods and communities, and they began to go to them and say, what do you want in a church? What do you want in a church? And what would you like in a church? And so they went out, if you will, to the world. They went out to lost people and said, what do you want in a church? And they began to take these surveys, they took the surveys, they brought it back, and then they began to modify and create the church that the world wanted. And by the way, the people came in flocks and, and droves and the church was full, but here's the sad thing is, is that they may have, the church may have been full, but the people were leaving empty. Are you with me? Does this make sense? And so they were entertained, and they had crowds, and people showed up. But lo and behold, the churches were full of people who didn't truly know Christ. Look at James 2.19, what the scripture says. He says this. James says, you believe that God is one. You believe in one God. He says, you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. Do you realize that even the devil believes in God? that even the demons believe that there is a God, but there, it goes much deeper than that. Look at this passage in Ephesians 2, 1 through 6, because this is so crucial, so important. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 6, it's similar to what we just sang about just a few moments ago, but he says this in Ephesians 2, 1, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, notice this, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he loved us, 
Even when we were dead in our trespasses, notice what happens. What did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, understand this. There was a, for all of us, there was a time we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were not spiritually alive. But the moment that we believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and we accept him and receive him as Lord and Savior, the Bible says this, that we are spiritually quickened. We're spiritually made alive. Jesus said it like this to the Nicodemus, the man who was religious. He was a religious man and he was lost. And he met Jesus at night because he was ashamed. And he didn't want anyone else to know. And it says that when he went to Jesus in the dark of night, he had a secret meeting. And although he was one of the most, most religious men on planet Earth, he was a part of the Sanhedrin, the 70 most spiritual men in all, uh, of all of Judaism. We see him coming to Jesus, and he begins to ask questions. And Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. You must have a spiritual birth. You need to be made alive to the Holy Spirit. Does this make sense? You must be born again. The Holy Spirit quickens. Jesus says to this church, that many of you need to just wake up spiritually, that you need to have a, a, a new birth in Christ, that it's no longer just a show, it's no longer just a masquerade, you're not just having religion, but you need a relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to be made alive. He says you need to wake up. There were the tares among the wheat. Throughout this letter, he gives them other challenges. He tells them that their works were incomplete. They were insufficient. I'm reminded of the passage in the book of Genesis by a man by the name of Cain, where Cain was offering up his, his own offerings to the Lord, and the Lord said, they're not acceptable to me. Do you remember Cain and Abel and the story of Cain and Abel and how Cain offered up the fruits of his ground. That was his religion, if you will. Abel offered up the sacrifice. And the Bible says that Cain's, his offering was not sufficient. It was not acceptable to God. I think it's a beautiful picture of this. Is that what God wants from us more than anything else is not our offerings, but God wants our hearts. Amen. He says to this church, remember he says, you need to remember. And he says a second time, wake up. So he says to the church, he says, you, you're spiritually dead, but you need to be born again. You need to wake up spiritually. But that also says to some, he says, there are many of you within this church that you are believers, but you've literally grown cold. You're spiritually dying. And he says, you need to remember. You need to remember and you need to, to, to wake up. He says as well, strengthen and hold fast to what remains. He says to the church, you need to have a spiritual wake-up call. You need to repent. And he warns them, you need to be prepared for my return. You see, there are those, I believe, within the church who are one, spiritually dead. They've never 
They're the ones who say, Lord, Lord, but he says, I never knew you. There are those within the church body, even a church like ours, that you've accepted Christ, you're a follower of Christ, but somewhere along the line, your love for the Lord has grown cold. And he says there's little left. You need to wake up. There's little time left. Wake up. You need a spiritual awakening. He says to the church to to strengthen what remains, to hold fast. And he says, be prepared. And it's interesting because he says these words. He says, for you do not want to be overtaken like a thief in the night. You see, understand that that phrase is used numerous times in Scripture. But if there's ever a church that should have known it, it should have been Sardis. Because the Lord is actually using something that happened to the city of Sardis years prior to try to wake this church up. You see, remember King Creosus, who is the king of Lydia, that powerful man? This is his city. And there is the the city of Sardis. And he went to war with the Persians, Cyrus the Great. And he never felt that he could ever be destroyed, that he could ever be taken. For the prophecy said that the city of Sardis could never be taken. They could never be defeated. And so Croesus goes out to war. He has greater numbers. There's a lot of amazing things that take place. He has greater numbers, and we call him Cyrus the Great, but this is before he was Cyrus the Great. No one knew of this new Persian king, and no one expected much of him, and he thought he'd go out and destroy him and take him out. And if you study history, you'll find that the King Croesus and the Lydian army outnumbers them, outnumbers them tremendously, and they go to battle, and they lose the battle King Cyrus is smart and wise and and used cunning ways. He used experience and he even realized whether you knew, I don't know if you knew this historically, but the Lydian army had a massive cavalry with many horses and that was literally the, the, the strength of his army. But what the king of Persia realizes this is that when he would use his camels and the smell of his camels, it intimidated the horses and the horses would flee. And so he took pack camels, hundreds and thousands of pack camels, and he surrounded his archers with them. And when the cavalry tried to come in, and the horses were terrified, they scattered. And then the archers were safe within the camels, and they began to shoot out. And a long story short, they had a great victory. And so King Creosis has to flee to his fortified city, the city of Sardis. But the prophecies say we'll never be defeated. The story goes on that he, he says, well, I'll use my money and I'll use my wealth. And so he sends for the Spartans and he sends for others. But the Spartans were in a battle of their own, in a war of their own, and they could not come. Even then, King Croesus in his pride says, well, we have the city of Sardis. It's kind of basically like the story of Troy. We have our city that cannot be defeated. And if you look at that picture there, on that upper hill, 1,500 foot high, just rock 
face mountain. There's one path that leads to the top. And so he took his army in the city and they hunkered down and they said, you can't take us. And so they sieged the city. King Cyrus and the Persians sieged the city. They surround the city for two weeks. They make numerous attempts and once again, they can't get the victory. Only one way in through that narrow path. You know what's interesting? Is King, King Cyrus the Great said, I will pay great monies for anyone who can find a way to scale the walls, find a way to get into the city. And so they were watching and observing. And the story goes like this, that actually one of the soldiers and the leading army dropped his helmet and fell. Now, how much of that story is true, we don't know, but we do know this. History tells us that one of the soldiers went, climbed down in an area where it was not protected, and he was able to scale down the, the side of the city wall. One of the Persian soldiers saw this, saw the weakness and saw how he was able to climb down to retrieve his helmet and went back up. And so he saw exactly where they could get into the city without going through that narrow gate, the one path. The story also goes like this, that when that soldier, I forget his name, but he's actually referenced in history, leads a group of men, and when they get to the top, and when they get to where this area that was not supposed to ever be needed to be defended, <laughs> they find the soldier sleeping. And they take over the city of Sardis. Sardis falls. Interesting that the Lord uses this term, you better wake up, come on now, or you'll be taken over like a thief in the night. Everybody in the city of Sardis knew that story. Every Christian knew that story. Jesus warns his church. He says, be careful, church. Be careful, Christian, that you don't get caught off guard at my coming. I want to just quickly show you a few things. He comforts his church. He says to the church, you need to wake up, but I like this. He says, there is a remnant he says, there are those of you, there are few of you who are holding fast, still living for me. And he gives them some encouragement. He reminds them, he says, to those who overcome. And how do we overcome? 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says this. How do we overcome? We've been saying it each week. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? He says to this church, to those of you who are true believers, true followers, to those of you who have overcome this world, you have overcome him by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? By the blood of the Lamb. And he gives them some promises. I love this. He promises them white raiments, a picture of purity, a picture of holiness, he says, I promise to you, those faithful who are worthy, 
those faithful who have overcome by the blood of the lamb, who have overcome by their faith in Jesus Christ. He says, I promise you white raiments. Let me give you a few scriptures about this. I love this. Isaiah says it like this in Isaiah 61.10. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult uh, in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. He says, you've been clothed in the righteousness of God, Isaiah says. Listen to what Zechariah says. Zechariah the prophet And Zechariah 3 says this, And then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? By the way, all of us who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, we are a brand plucked from the fire. Amen. He says, now Joshua is standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, with, with, with pure garments. And he said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Look what Revelation says. It's amazing. Isaiah the prophet, Zechariah, and then the book of Revelation. John tells us this later in the book of Revelation. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and people and languages, stand before the throne and before the Lamb. Notice, what were they clothed in? Clothed in what? White robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, and all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Notice this, here's the key. They have, they have their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb, amen? Can I say to you that when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and when we enter into his presence, we will be clothed in white robes. What are these white robes? Literally, they were a picture of the, of, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, amen? That he will not see us in our, in our sin, in our iniquity. And when we accept Jesus Christ, we are born into the family of God. And when we're born into the family of God, he says, when you stand before him, beautiful picture, beautiful symbolism here, that we are no longer in our dirty, filthy, sinful rags, amen? We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Give him praise, give him honor, and give him glory. And he says this, 
He says their names will never be blotted out of the book of life. He says, I will never blot their names out of my book. When you accept the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says our names are written in heaven, in the Lamb's book of life. And he says, I will never blot your name out. Amen. He reminds them, your names are written in heaven. Christian, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, it is because of the finished work of what Jesus Christ has done that we have the privilege to stand in the presence of God, clothed in his righteousness, knowing that our names are written in heaven ought to encourage us and ought to give us the ability and the strength, amen, to finish strong. As he says here to this church, he says, strengthen what remains. With what you have left, fight with everything you've got. Amen, church? Now, let me finish with this. You say, wow, this is this dead church. The Lord sends this letter. What happened to this dead church? I can't say for certain what happened, but let me give you historically a good possibility. This church received this letter, and these were strong words. They were told basically by the Lord himself, you are dead. You're a fake. You're a phony. You're a fraud. You're putting on a show. You look alive, and you have this name and reputation alive, but you are dead. By the way, strong words, right? What do you think happened to this church? Well, I can tell you this. That about 30 to 40 years later, there was a man by the name of Bishop Malito of Sardis, who was the pastor, the bishop of this church. Not only was he still pastoring and preaching and faithfully leading this church, he actually even wrote letters in the gospel letters and confronted Marcus Aurelius <laughs> with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I propose to you that what I believe happened to this church is they were confronted by the Lord. They got this letter. And you know what I think happened? I think a lot of people woke up spiritually, amen? And revival happened in Sardis. So much so that years later, 30, 40 years later, we have this bishop who's confronting Rome itself and sharing the gospel with Caesar himself and saying, you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I say to you that I love that the Lord Jesus Christ is long-suffering and that the Lord didn't give up on that church of Sardis, amen? And that even though Sardis was almost dead and almost gone, that the Lord still loved the church and he sent them the letter and we see that they responded to this letter. And history tells us that the church was still there decades later and not only still there, but they were still on fire for God. And may I say to you, God has not given up on you either, amen? And I don't know where you're at spiritually this morning. Maybe you don't even know the Lord Jesus Christ. You have not been born again. Today is the day. Wake up. Today is the day to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and to know that your name is written in heaven and that you can be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Praise him. And maybe you've just been spiritually dead and you needed a wake-up call. Come on now, right? We all need it once in a while. But know this, that the Lord 
He is patient. He is long-suffering. And he's not finished with us. Amen? I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that we're not a dead church. Amen? But we also need to be on guard because this church of Sardis was once had a reputation of being on fire for the Lord. But somewhere along the line, they spiritually slowly began to die. May that not be our reputation. Amen? May we hold fast till he comes. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we.